Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of verbal abuse, medical malpractice, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In 2021, the US saw well over 1 million plastic surgery procedures, a number that only continues to grow. Every day, operating rooms are full of patients hoping to become more beautiful. But what many fail to realize is that becoming something is more than looking the part. Dr. Anthony Pignataro never seemed to grasp that. He navigated multiple residencies with feigned expertise, then opened a practice relying on a forged diploma. For years, many of his patients were none the wiser. But even if he played the part of plastic surgeon well, nothing could make up for his lack of qualification. And by the time the truth caught up with Dr. Pignataro, his lies had turned lethal. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm excited to provide Alastair with some medical insight into our case of Dr. Anthony Pignataro a New York surgeon who managed to take shortcuts throughout his training and professional career that literally proved to have grave consequences. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Dr. Anthony Pignataro, an unqualified physician who endangered patients while posing as a plastic surgeon, leading to multiple deaths along the way. This week, we'll examine Anthony's start in the medical field and how he hid his insufficient training beneath fake documents and PR stunts. We'll also track his first fatal mistakes. Next week, we'll pick up with the death that brought a team of investigators to Anthony's private practice. We'll also examine his ruthless efforts for redemption. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping. Summer Shipalooza. So you can start crossing items off your must-ship list. Like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class. Or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Early one morning in the summer of 1997, 39-year-old Terry Lamarty greeted her doctor in his private office in upstate New York. After four pregnancies, Terry wanted to feel confident in her body again, something her husband knew when he gave her a gift certificate for liposuction earlier that year. At the time, Dr. Anthony Pignataro had extensive promotional ads circulating, so it's possible the procedure came at a discount. But after her consultation, Terry trusted Dr. Pignataro. He'd charmed her. And now, she was about to follow through with the surgery. Though it would take some time to heal, Terry eagerly looked forward to the final results and readily swallowed when the doctor extended a handful of pills. Soon, her eyelids grew heavy, and a woman emerged to guide her to the surgery center. But something wasn't right. As Terry reached the end of two flights of stairs, she couldn't believe what she was seeing. The surgery center was little more than a medical reclining chair and a small table of tools. This was no place for an invasive procedure. It was a basement. It's unlikely this makeshift basement operation was up to code. Among other potential issues, imperfect surgical settings can pose a large risk for infection, and this is particularly true for highly invasive procedures like liposuction. The stakes here are even higher for abdominal liposuction because of the peritoneum, which is the abdominal membrane that houses so many of our major organs. An unsanitary cannula, for example, may puncture or scratch this protective membrane, potentially leading to infection. This infection can then easily spread to the abdominal organs, which may in turn lead to a fatal toxic shock syndrome. Sadly, Terry couldn't advocate for herself in this situation, but she was right to be afraid. Already sedated, Terry didn't have a chance to act on her fears. As the world around her seemed to slip away, she was directed to the chair. Her own moans were the last thing she heard before she fell unconscious. Her life now rested in the hands of Dr. Anthony Pignataro. Decades before Anthony ran an illicit practice, he had one big reason to become a doctor. His dad. Born May 12, 1958, in the West Seneca neighborhood of Buffalo, New York, Anthony looked up to his surgeon father from an early age. 
Dr. Ralph Pignataro wielded respect from all who knew him. Patients just trusted him, and though he'd apparently cheated on his wife several times, Anthony's dad took good care of her and the kids, at least financially. At the height of the nuclear family, this was something to be revered. According to Anne Rule, author of Last Dance, Last Chance, Ralph Pignataro spoiled his four children with a big home and expensive educations. Anthony, the eldest boy, attended the Nichols School, a private high school where tuition was between $11,000 and $15,000 per year. It's unclear if Anthony got good marks, but he didn't really need them. His dad was fully prepared to foot the bill of college expenses. Pursuing higher learning was likely never an if, but a where. In 1976, 18-year-old Anthony headed to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania to pursue a major in math. He wasn't all that interested in his studies, perhaps because his mind was elsewhere. Social activities kept him busy, especially once he found his footing in boxing. Anthony excelled in the sport, becoming a champion in his weight class. And it seemed to give him ample confidence, which landed well with the ladies when he went back to West Seneca for the summers. In July 1978, Anthony had just finished his sophomore year and was out on the town when he spotted 20-year-old Debbie Rago in a parking lot. He teased her about her driving and Debbie flirted back. Soon they realized they ran in the same circles. Anthony was dating one of Debbie's acquaintances, but that fling was short-lived. Anthony dumped the girl to start seeing Debbie, and the summer romance quickly bloomed into something more serious. Still, as Anthony completed his studies at Lehigh, he made it clear that he needed to figure out his professional future before he thought about marriage. During his final year at Lehigh, 22-year-old Anthony decided he wanted to become a doctor like his father. But the choice came with notable challenges. None of the prestigious medical schools he applied to accepted him. His MCAT scores just weren't high enough. Eventually, around 1983, he enrolled somewhere that would accept him. The Universidad Central del Caribe in Puerto Rico. If you've never heard of it, don't worry. It's not necessarily known in the U.S. for its prestige as a medical school. Although many students turn to international medical schools, if they can't gain admission to the U.S. institutions, they can certainly face challenges in developing a successful career. I've worked with doctors who've trained at international medical schools in places like the Caribbean, and in my experience, they're not as well trained. These schools tend to be somewhat of a last resort for students who've run out of other options in the United States, and as such, admissions qualifications are much less stringent. These international programs also usually lack the resources to provide high-quality training, and frankly, this makes the educational experience subpar. If Anthony wanted access to the best residency programs in hospitals when he returned to the United States, graduating from a less accredited school abroad wasn't in his best interest. Anthony overlooked these concerns entirely and proceeded with his schooling. At a glance, it had all the bells and whistles of a normal medical school. And to Anthony, the first glance was all that mattered. Even though at a second glance, the classes were all taught in Spanish, 
a language Anthony didn't speak. Maybe he thought he'd catch on. Ultimately, he completed two years at the college, but it's unclear whether he actually graduated. Typically, MD programs are four years long, requiring two years of coursework and two years in applied clinical rotations that prepare a doctor for residencies. Still, in the spring of 1985, 27-year-old Anthony seemed to think he was done with school. He still had residencies ahead of him, but he'd take care of those in the States. It made more sense. He and his patients would speak the same language. And after seven years in a long-distance relationship, he was still seeing Debbie. Now, Anthony finally felt free to start his life with her. The two got married on June 15, 1985 in a Catholic church before over 350 guests, a culminating moment that both had long awaited. And life only seemed to get better for Anthony when his dad helped him land a residency at St. Agnes Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. The facility was a satellite hospital of Johns Hopkins, so it belonged to the Johns Hopkins system, but its facilities weren't entirely run by the prestigious university's administration. Yet Anthony preferred to tell people he worked at Johns Hopkins. That made him appear more successful. It was a small extrapolation, but spoke volumes about Anthony's character. He always needed to feel important. It wasn't until Debbie's first summer as his wife, nearly eight years into their relationship, that she came to understand that. That summer, Anthony constantly complained about his problems, made rude remarks to those around him, and demonstrated a lack of basic respect for others. Anthony seemed to think other people were the problem, that they just couldn't take a joke. But his defenses were tired excuses for what was more obviously a poor attitude. And soon, they'd stunt his growth as a doctor for the worse. Coming up, Anthony fails at medicine and turns to fraud. What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The Rise and Fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 Years of Roswell, The Tragic Death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. 
By July 1985, 27-year-old Anthony Pignataro was well on his way to becoming a practicing doctor. After about two years at a Puerto Rican medical school, he married his longtime girlfriend Debbie and secured his first residency at St. Agnes Hospital in Maryland. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for the newlyweds. Though Anthony was initially interested in the OBGYN specialty, his residency was a general surgery program. This kind of shift isn't unheard of for young doctors. Anthony likely opted to proceed with this new area of medicine because it more closely followed in his father's footsteps. Still, the learning curve was steep, and the choice came with its costs. Anthony was on call every third night, and whenever he was home, he was either sleeping or studying. Though Debbie didn't have much access to her husband, she'd come to accept that it came with the territory. One day, her husband would have his own practice, and they'd have more time for one another. Until then, Debbie focused on what she could control. She got a job working for a plastic surgeon and strove to be an attentive wife. Nearly two years later, in April 1987, she gave birth to a baby boy. They named him Ralph after Anthony's father, the hotshot surgeon who'd become his son's greatest inspiration. But what should have been a joyous moment for the couple was soon tainted as Anthony's attention seemed to drift even further from his family. On at least one occasion, when Debbie answered their home phone, a woman asked for Anthony. On others, when Debbie said hello, the line immediately hung up. At first, Debbie reasoned that perhaps some of Anthony's patients had developed crushes, perfectly harmless. But then, Debbie found a cassette recording in her back seat. On it, Anthony flirting with another woman. It was clear from what was said that Anthony had cheated. Heartbroken, Debbie called him out and hit him, threatening to leave and take the baby. In response, Anthony called Debbie's father and told him Debbie was about to walk out on him. Debbie's dad gave the couple one piece of advice. Forgive once. Debbie took it. She may have even made justifications for her husband's behavior. After all, he was at a crossroads in his life. After two years at St. Agnes, Anthony planned to return to the program a third year, but his contract wasn't renewed. He'd need to come up with another plan if he wanted to be a board-certified surgeon. Angry, Anthony considered suing the hospital, then sought legal counsel and decided against it, probably because he didn't have a solid case to make. A lot of residencies are highly competitive. It wasn't totally unique for a doctor not to get called back. Still, Anthony left Baltimore humiliated. He and Debbie returned to Buffalo, New York, where they lived with Anthony's parents for a while before moving into a place of their own. Soon, Anthony got a job at a walk-in emergency center. It was a far cry from the prestigious John Hopkins-adjacent residency, and he pined for something more esteemed. But the fact of the matter was, Anthony barely had the competency for this position. While at that job, Anthony treated a patient who presented with severe inflammation in their heart lining. They had a condition known as bacterial endocarditis. 
but Anthony didn't catch it. Failure to diagnose a condition like this can be deadly, Alistair. However, bacterial endocarditis is something that can often be misdiagnosed because its symptoms often mimic those of less serious conditions. Furthermore, these symptoms can vary significantly from person to person and present differently based on the infection's progression. Generally speaking, a patient suffering from an advanced case would experience things like chest pain, a fever with chills, shortness of breath, and possibly a newly developed heart murmur. Anthony absolutely should have considered the possibility of this illness, and his ineptitude in not considering this possibility was very dangerous for his patient. Anthony's patient never received appropriate treatment, and soon they died. Naturally, the onus fell on Anthony. He'd failed to make the proper diagnosis, one that quite literally could have saved a life. Though Anthony was hit with a wrongful death suit, it got dropped. He'd been lucky this time, though it's unclear if that's how Anthony saw it. Given his past arrogance, he might have overlooked his errors, chalking his own involvement up to a sad coincidence. This blatant lack of accountability and concern for others expanded into his personal life. In June 1988, his wife gave birth to their second child, and doctors revealed the baby had a major brain tumor. She would spend her life in a vegetative state. They chose to take her off life support, and she died shortly after. Though likely grieving, he didn't have any interest in facing his pain among loved ones. Instead, Anthony accepted a brand new residency that started the following month at the prestigious Georgetown University in DC. He advised Debbie to hang back in Buffalo with their son while he got situated on his new turf. He seemed to think that the two of them could cope with the loss on their own. They couldn't. When Debbie joined Anthony a month later, their marriage had gone from bad to worse. Anthony frequently berated Debbie, saying things like, Have you looked at yourself in the mirror? Do you think I want to be with someone who looks like that? Debbie didn't know what to do. She tried dieting, but nothing seemed to satisfy her husband. Maybe because he was dissatisfied with himself. Shortly after starting his residency at Georgetown, Anthony decided he didn't want to be a general surgeon. Instead, he would pursue otolaryngology, or medicine of the ear, nose, and throat. This was a major pivot, at a rather inconvenient time, too. By now, Anthony had spent over a decade of his life in education and training. He'd started his undergraduate degree in 1976 and med school in 1983. Now, in 1987, all he had to show for it was a half-completed residency experience. He still didn't have the privileges a board-certified doctor did. Still, he was undeterred from chasing this new specialty, even though it required him to switch his focus yet again. Changing specialties this late in the game is doable, but it would definitely require a certain degree of sacrifice, which is why most doctors avoid it. Surgical subspecialty residencies take a long time to complete for obvious reasons. Otolaryngology residencies are particularly long, usually requiring a minimum of five years, as opposed to some other subspecialties, which may only require three or four. 
This is because of the complex interrelationships of the ear, nose, and throat's anatomy. Subspecialty schooling isn't an uncommon path for a doctor, as physicians often experience evolving preferences and goals. Even though it might have taken Anthony more time, he'd probably be better off in the long run, since he likely doubted his choice to become a general surgeon. And his passion for his new focus was evident. But it wasn't just sinus issues or ear aches he was interested in. Facial anatomy fascinated him, and he decided he wanted to deepen his understanding of plastic surgery in particular. Unfortunately, the change in focus did little to help Anthony's luck with his education. Staff members and colleagues at Georgetown didn't like him. According to Anne Rule's book, they felt Anthony was conceited and only out for himself. For example, on New Year's Eve 1988, 30-year-old Anthony had ER duties but chose to walk out in the middle of his shift and get drunk at a bar. This threatened his standing in the program. By a stroke of luck, Georgetown didn't drop Anthony, but he wasn't at all grateful about it. In the months that followed, he complained to his wife more and more about his dissatisfaction with the program. Debbie figured she'd let Anthony vent. With another kid on the way, she must have just wanted Anthony to complete his training so they could move back to West Seneca and be near their families. But that wasn't exactly how things panned out. During his second year at Georgetown, Anthony decided to transfer to yet another program. This one was at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. And since he didn't finish out at Georgetown, he'd have to do at least another two years at this next facility. By this point, it's hard to imagine that Anthony's failures weren't weighing on his self-esteem. Even worse, Anthony's choices weren't just affecting him. At every move, Debbie made necessary changes to accommodate him. As her path to a financially stable home life drifted further and further away. We don't know how Anthony justified this third pivot to Debbie, but she didn't protest. In June 1990, they picked up and headed north. By that point, Debbie had given birth to their daughter, Lauren. Though perfectly healthy, the newborn likely took a toll on Debbie, who now had to take on most of the parenting of two children without her mother or in-laws to help. Yet again, Anthony's struggles dominated their lives. He thought he'd be content with his pivot to this new program, but it turned out the residency at Thomas Jefferson posed similar challenges to Georgetown's. People in his cohort didn't seem to like him. Amid these recurring social troubles, Anthony never stopped to consider that perhaps he was the common denominator and become kinder. Instead, he claimed people envied him since he'd come from such a distinguished program. That was a stretch. During Anthony's first year at Thomas Jefferson, he left nearly everyone with a bad impression of his medical expertise. In his residency evaluation in June 1991, doctors had to score him on a scale of 1 to 5. Typically, successful residents get at least a 4. Anthony scored between 1 and 2.5 across the board. Among the qualitative analyses, one physician stated that Anthony was a, quote, 
medico-sociopath. It seems plausible that this physician wasn't just using the term medico-sociopath to exaggerate the situation. Perhaps he thought Anthony actually might be suffering from a distinct type of an antisocial personality disorder. Assuming this doctor isn't the subject of a future medical murders episode, I'm inclined to believe his assessment, especially since he'd worked with him for an entire year. Luckily for Anthony, residency evaluations hold very little over doctors after their certification. However, they could impact employment opportunities in certain circumstances. For example, when I was working with my medical group, we sometimes referred to these evaluations as a resource if we weren't totally sure about hiring someone. Nevertheless, regardless of Anthony's mental health, he wasn't making a good impression. His cohort seemed to have similar concerns. One fellow resident even warned that Anthony shouldn't be rehired, including, quote, I fear that lives are truly at stake. This suggests that rudeness wasn't Anthony's only problem as he tried to work his way into the medical field. His lack of knowledge remained in question. So it was no surprise when 33-year-old Anthony Pignataro wasn't invited back to the second year of the program. It was his third in six years, and he'd failed. Far worse, board certification exams for an initial specialty must be taken no more than seven years after the successful completion of medical school. To take on another residency would push him past that time limit. Essentially, Anthony was now ineligible to take exams under the American Board of Otolaryngology. This challenged his odds of getting hired anywhere. He could go back to a different medical school and try to qualify again in the future, but Anthony lost his patience. He told his wife he was done with residency programs. They were so confining, they wanted him to fit a certain mold. He wasn't about to conform to their whims. The way Anthony saw it, he'd garnered enough experience across the three programs even though he hadn't finished any of them. It was time they head back to West Seneca. He wanted patients of his own. Coming up, Anthony starts his own practice, complete with certifications he doesn't have. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1991, 33-year-old Dr. Anthony Pignataro and his wife Debbie moved back to West Seneca, New York with their two children. He'd spent six unsuccessful years at three separate residencies, and the last one hadn't invited him back, leaving him a major hurdle in his plans to become an ear, nose, and throat doctor, or ENT. He couldn't take the board exam. Without that certification, Getting hired at a hospital would be a lot harder. While board certification isn't required to practice medicine, many hospitals won't hire uncertified doctors. Hospitals are often discriminatory here to give themselves more legal protection, and hiring board-certified physicians is a way of lessening their own perceived responsibility in any potential lawsuits. In reality, despite the perceptual advantage, becoming board-certified is a voluntary and often unnecessary step and doesn't actually equate to better clinical competence. Just because a doctor isn't board-certified, they're always required to become board-qualified to successfully complete their residency programs and go into practice. However, it's an important veneer for employment at major hospitals, and Anthony would absolutely have a tough time finding work in this environment without this credential. But that didn't stop him from finding a loophole. In his mind, working at a hospital was the only way to build up a solid client base. And if he couldn't get privileges on his own, he'd work for someone who could. For Anthony, that person was an elderly physician recovering from a coronary bypass. The well-known doctor needed Anthony's help two or three days a week, assisting him with appointments. And because of their work together, Anthony got the hospital privileges he was after. In 1992, Wyoming County Community Hospital granted Anthony access to their facility. To be clear, he was an assistant, but he'd be allowed to treat patients in the facility. Though it's unclear how, that same year, Anthony schemed his way into work at a second hospital, Our Lady of Victory, where he'd have the chance to run surgeries himself. This was a pretty significant responsibility for Anthony to be trusted with, and the hospital may have felt leery about his lack of board certification. However, being board certified can sometimes be viewed by hospitals as secondary to basic competency, and this would have been more likely at a smaller hospital in the early 1990s. It's even possible that his work assisting the other physician helped qualify him in some way. Whatever the case, Anthony managed to gain the trust of a handful of very important medical professionals. But Anthony couldn't keep up the con for long. In February 1993, 34-year-old Anthony operated on a 71-year-old patient at Our Lady of Victory. The goal was to extract a laryngeal tumor for biopsy. The surgery required him to operate deep in the throat region. Unfortunately, this can often cause complications regarding airflow, especially if swelling occurs. 
It's very important to account for complications that can occur during a procedure this deep within the throat. Anthony would have needed to ensure that his patient's breathing wouldn't be obstructed as a result of swelling, but he also needed to consider possible bleeding issues that could interfere with oxygenation. He'd also need to contemplate the potential for infection and how vulnerable his patient's vocal cords would be during the operation. When a patient's life and quality of life are on the line, you have to be prepared for the worst to ensure the best outcome. But Anthony didn't account for lack of oxygen or swelling. The patient died. Naturally, the hospital responded with alarm. They restricted him from performing airway-related procedures after 1 p.m., probably because morning shifts were the only time they could find another doctor to monitor him. Anthony didn't like this red tape, but there was little he could do to change it. He was lucky the hospital considered it an accident and didn't immediately terminate him. Though, in September 1993, when his initial contract with the hospital expired, Our Lady of Victory did not renew his privileges. Anthony likely shrugged off the loss. At least he still had access to the other hospital where he'd assisted the recovering doctor. Pretty soon, Anthony screwed up there, too. While operating on a 30-year-old man's deviated septum in August 1994, Anthony nicked the outer layer of the brain and fluid leaked into the patient's nasal passages. Such a mistake posed a high risk of meningitis, nerve damage, or a brain abscess. Anthony finished the procedure and said nothing. Luckily, the patient survived. But the issue quickly reached an ENT specialist at the hospital who questioned whether Anthony had the credentials to do the invasive procedure in the first place. The next day, Wyoming County Community Hospital cancelled his privileges. Yet another blow. And it seemed the rejections only kept coming. Around this time, the elderly physician he'd been assisting seemed to seek Anthony's help less and less. So Anthony applied to work in both otolaryngology and plastic surgery at two facilities in New York. Neither hired him. He couldn't prove that he'd been board certified in either specialty. Red tape again. To get around it, Anthony appealed to the American Board of Cosmetic Surgery and Facial Cosmetic Surgery, asking for their certification. If Anthony was the experienced ENT doctor he claimed to be at this point, it shouldn't have been hard to get. A facial cosmetic surgeon is often a trained ENT who's completed an additional one-year cosmetic surgery fellowship. But the board required an otolaryngology diploma, and Anthony didn't have that. So, at the start of 1995, he turned to face an old enemy. The Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia his last residency program. Anthony seemed to believe one of the chairmen might have sabotaged him. In a maneuver to gain eligibility for the exams, Anthony sued the residency. He hoped to prove in court that he was qualified and had been misjudged by those overseeing his advancement. To make his case, Anthony selected a physician he thought would treat him favorably to write a report. We'll call him Dr. Smith. His part in Anthony's investigation was simple, though extensive. 
He'd interview various specialists who'd worked with Anthony during the program. Then he'd write up a conclusion. But Anthony's plan backfired. Dr. Smith's statement painted him as a lazy liar who didn't respond to correction, writing, He would routinely show up late for rounds, claiming he had done work he had not done, say he had seen intensive care unit patients he had not seen, fabricate laboratory data, fabricate physical examination data, fabricate information about post-operative patients that he had not seen. This was incredibly disparaging feedback. Yet, not even then did Anthony consider that maybe he wasn't cut out for the medical profession. Instead, he deemed the report unusable for his defense and dropped the suit. Now, in the spring of 1995, Anthony had to find a different way to prove his legitimacy as an ENT to the American Board of Cosmetic Surgery and Facial Cosmetic Surgery. In his mind, he was qualified. He just didn't have a residency diploma. So, he faked one. It said he'd completed an ENT residency at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, dated October 31, 1991. Even if Anthony had completed the Thomas Jefferson residency, he wouldn't have finished that soon. This was blatant fraud. But evidently, the board didn't follow up. They fell for his trick and permitted him to take the exam. In April 1995, he passed. This secured Anthony the accreditation he needed to start offering plastic surgery at his own private practice. Anthony just needed a new way to get his name out there, to willing patients. As luck would have it, Anthony had just the gimmick to get people talking. It was an idea that had sprung from the wells of his own insecurities, his boldness. Anthony had been losing hair since his mid-twenties. Now 37, he opted for toupees in daily life, but they never stayed on quite right. So Anthony had recently devised a solution. If a wig could simply snap onto his skull, he wouldn't have to worry about it falling off in public. Anthony genuinely felt the product held promise for men everywhere and made himself his first patient. He asked his surgeon father to drill several holes into the top of his skull. A few months later, when the holes had healed some, the bolts would be placed, rising only slightly above the scalp for a hairpiece to snap onto. Though the idea was somewhat outlandish, it performed well with the general public, especially when the Associated Press ran an article on it. Pretty soon, Anthony made appearances on a variety of shows, including CBS Nightly News and The Maury Povich Show. In each, he demonstrated his hair implant device. Seemingly overnight, his self-promotion worked. Clients came money rolled in, and Anthony's practice grew busier. Still, he continued to rely on corny newspaper and radio ads to promote his services and affordable deals. In each one, Anthony claimed he was fully certified, and his new patients never seemed to question that. If Anthony didn't have a big enough head before, the media attention had inflated it 
even bigger. By the time 1996 rolled around, 38-year-old Anthony was driving a red Lamborghini and sending expensive gifts to an exotic dancer whose breasts he'd enlarged. With his snap-on wig, Anthony became the success he'd always wanted to be. Or so it appeared. But even if he looked the part, he didn't exactly fit the role of successful doctor. And Anthony's rich guy persona couldn't make up for the fact that he'd contributed to two patient deaths. And his lack of experience and training would soon rear its ugly head again. According to the Buffalo News, one morning in August 1997, 39-year-old Terry Lamarty headed into Anthony's private practice for her liposuction procedure. Shortly after, she was brought down to the basement operating room of Dr. Anthony Pignataro's practice. Even as sedatives dulled her focus, Terry could tell that there was something terribly wrong. This wasn't a proper facility. As she took one deep breath before falling under, she now faced a daunting possibility. It might be her last. When she woke up at 5 p.m. that evening, Terry was fully dressed. Her husband drove her home, but she didn't feel right. At home, she noticed blood pouring down her legs and pooling onto the ground. What Terry discovered next was even more gut-wrenching. When she lifted her shirt, she saw 18 to 22 staples across her stomach and surgical incisions that hadn't been closed. Desperate for answers, Terry called Dr. Pignataro, but he assured her the blood was simply excess surgery fluid, then advised her to take the evening to rest. Though uncomfortable, Terry went along with his instructions. Until the next morning, when she woke in excruciating pain. Unable to ignore the blood seeping through her shirt, she headed to the hospital with her family members. There, doctors made an awful discovery. During the procedure, Terry's intestine had been cut and she was now suffering from a severe infection. As for the staples, they were cutting off blood supply to her abdomen. This sounds unusual given Terry's procedure. The 18 to 22 stitches across her abdomen seems excessive and strange given that liposuction only requires small incisions for the fat-sucking cannula. Often, doctors don't even use sutures in liposuction procedures because of this. However, if the wounds were significant, it's inexcusable that they'd be left unstitched as this would be a welcome mat for bacteria and infection. The mutilation here suggests that Anthony was reckless with his cannula, and Terry's nicked intestine is a further testament to that. It seems like he was being too rough with this instrument and was seemingly probing it too deep into the abdomen. Terry was in real trouble at this point. If Terry hadn't gotten to the hospital when she did, it's possible she would have died. But Anthony didn't seem to think so. Days after the surgery, Terry was still in the hospital recovering. One night, around 2.30 a.m., something disturbing woke her. 
There, in front of her, stood Dr. Anthony Pignataro. Dr. Pignataro had no medical access to this hospital. It's unclear how he even knew Terry would be there. But somehow, he talked his way in and started flipping through Terry's chart. Then, he started screaming at her, telling her to go home. She had no reason to be there. It was a scene out of a nightmare. Luckily, the nurses on duty quickly intervened and urged Anthony to leave. Terry remained in her hospital bed, still hurting and completely shaken. But even if she didn't know it yet, Terry was lucky. She wouldn't be Dr. Anthony Pignataro's last victim that summer. And the next one wouldn't make it out alive. Next week, we'll return on the heels of Dr. Anthony Pignataro's life-threatening plastic surgery blunder as he treats a patient whose death sparks an investigation. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much. For more information on Anthony Pignataro, among the many sources we used, we found Last Dance, Last Chance by Anne Rule extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, edited by Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murder stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 